I have three signs on my door that say, do not knock, do not enter, <laughs> go away. Important meeting in progress. There's nothing more important happening at CBF today than what we're about to do. Well, we want to get a clean recording because uh, we don't want anyone to miss a single word of what I've got to say. It's very true. Well, and that might be a good place to, to introduce you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Church Starts Conversation. I have with me today the brilliant Ryan Clark. Ryan works with our CBF Global side as the Global Missions Church Engagement Manager, but he also has a plethora of experience uh, across the board. He served for two and a half years in the Philippines as field personnel, and before that, he was at McAfee School of Theology, one of our partner schools, as the director of admissions. Ryan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm honored. Um, well, you have, you've done quite a variety of, of things in ministry. Um, tell, us, tell us about the experiences like being in the Philippines. The Philippines was the most meaningful thing I've ever done. Most meaningful time in my life and the hardest. We went there as CBF field personnel. Uh, my role was to teach in the area of pastoral care, and my wife taught music. And pastoral care is not really my main area of focus. I did a doctor of ministry degree in the area of gospel and culture and looked at theological education. So um, I was, but I was able to stay about a chapter ahead of the students. Um, some, most of the students, I should say. Uh, but, yeah, but we, while we were there, our, we took a daughter, our daughter, Emily Jane, when she was 20 months old, and we had our son uh, while we were there. And so it was, it was a real beautiful time for our family. We lived on a campus in community with other people in a, in a duplex with other faculty, um, had lunch together. Um, but we also had fears like, um, having had a, a break in while we were in the home and, uh, you know, just living in a, in a country that is not quite as developed as the United States, you'd be walking down a sidewalk and come around a curve and there'd be a giant uh, hole where there was, uh, they were replacing a pipe and no indication. So you could just fall to your demise. Um, so it was, it was, it was beautiful and wonderful and it was frightening and, and uh, sad sometimes. Uh, but we would we would do it again for sure. What you're saying is that if someone has a pastoral care need from the CBF staff, you should not be the first person they call. But if you wanted to teach them a book on pastoral care, you would be excellent at teaching them on a book. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm a better smart aleck than I am chaplain, to be perfectly honest. But deep down somewhere, I, I am able to kind of pull up and muster my my pastoral calling and heart. Um, but it uh, but it, it gets buried deep underneath the um, the smarm. To be quite honest with you, you care deeply for people. It's just that you might have a little bit of a smug smile as you do it. That's what you're saying. Uh, I might, and thank you for letting me know that because I'm going to work on my facial expressions in public. Well, I think uh, <laughs> you and I are in, in similar capacities with CBF and the fact that uh, both of us have been there and done that for you on the global mission side. You served as field personnel. You were, you know, 
feet on the ground day by day living among people. And so it was natural for CBF Global to say, you know, come on board, work with us with our field personnel, work with some of our congregations to help them better understand what our field personnel are doing and how global missions can partner together with you. Same could be said about my capacity with CBF, uh, you know, starting a church self, working through that off and joke that uh, Bo Prosser and Harry Rowland asked me to come on board because I could tell everybody what not to do by experience. Um, <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what you do with CBF Global. Yeah. So as we were finishing up our first term of service with uh, CBF in the Philippines, you know, we were prayerfully considering a couple different things back in the U.S. And one of those that CBF had opened a position that was for someone who would work specifically with our field personnel who were raising money. What a lot of people in, in CBF land don't know is that in the mid-2000s, CBF, uh, the offering for global missions, the main funding engine for CBF global missions, plateaued. And uh, while CBF received some large anonymous financial gifts, which were huge blessings, um, it became evident that CBF couldn't continue to commission um, employees, uh, employed field personnel um, who drew their support from that offering because the long-term um, commitments, financial commitments that that made, um, you know, we just couldn't expect the offering if it continued to grow and grew out of a slump, we wouldn't be able to, to count on that to continue growing indefinitely into the future. In fact, that's something that the IMB uh, uh, came to realize over the past couple of years as well. So from about 2008 on, um, all of the new field personnel we're in a category uh, that we call partner funded, which means that they were, they went through the training and the selection process that all field personnel have gone through with the exception that they were not funded by the offering for global missions. They were raising their own support uh, for their salary, travel benefits, uh, their mission programming money uh, to, to do the work that they felt called to do. And some of those, some of us, did that as employees and some as non-employees. So <clears throat> that transition to that, to the good thing about that was in those years, we got to do lots of little experiments in raising money for missions that, uh, and make ad adaptations to a, a pretty significant culture shift in the United States. So, um, and one of those is that people, um, younger generations being a little more suspicious of institutions or a lot more suspicious if you're X <laughs> and, um, feeling, uh, having a charitable heart, but not feeling like giving to a generic, um, offering. And so, and all of us in nonprofit have experienced this where someone is, will gladly write a $2,000 check. Um, for something very specific like a well or a, a van or a scholarship to a specific kind of person. Um, but that sort of general giving um, has, has become quite a struggle to raise. So for good, CBF has been able to engage in these small experiments of raising money. In fact, um, 
last year, CBF raised about $4 million through the Offering for Global Missions, uh, and field personnel raised an additional $2 million in that same year in project and individual support uh, by missionaries. So we've, we've been able to, CBF, field personnel, have been able to capitalize on having some fundraising flexibility in our, in our system uh, to meet uh, their ministry needs. It sounds like a good bit of this kind of puts you all in a challenging place, but a creative place to uh, think around how you do uh, sustainable fundraising. Um, and you've worked with many of our field personnel um, around this idea of um, sustainable fundraising, being creative within it. Um, and of course, we brought you on board to talk with many of our church starters, especially at the exploratory uh, church start uh, conference level about that. What are some of those uh, creative ways that you have talked with field personnel about raising sustainable funds? Yeah. So one of the things in coming to the office, one of my big goals uh, that was given to me to accomplish was we had field personnel who could raise a lot of money uh, because they do important work. It's, it's uh, stunning um, with stunning images, but what, was difficult was that people would give like a one-time gift um, because they felt motivated in the moment. We see this a lot with like disaster response. People will feel, have an emotional sort of connection to what's been going on and they'll give a one-time gift. And so one of the transitions we've been making through the last several years is to help cultivate relationships with people so that um, they would, uh, Give in a recur, give recurring gift, and uh, be it in an ongoing relationship with the ministries of our field personnel around the world. As you think around, um, you know, because you've coached many of them in this process, what are what are some of the best practices, uh, or maybe uh, a better way of asking is, what are some of the healthy practices? Um, of establishing and sustaining partnerships with individuals and churches? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think, I think those start with first self-awareness. Um, I was um, raised by a single mom who had uh, a common law husband who, um, who left. And, um, and I, I remember um, as a kid being a skater dude in Southern California and having a, a buddy uh, riding his board really hard. And someone asked him about it. He said, if I break it, I'm trying to break it because if I do, I can get a new one. And I remember hearing him say that and thinking I had sort of a, a different perspective. I, I was like trying not to break my board because if it broke, I wouldn't get another one till Christmas. And, um, and, and I remember my mom, as a kid, my mom working two jobs and uh, getting a, you know, if I got a really nice gift for my birthday, feeling guilty, knowing that my mom must have had to have worked overtime at one of her two jobs, full-time at one and part-time at another job, uh, in order to, like, save up enough money for that. And so there, there are a lot of advantages to being raised in a family like that and having um, a healthy sort of frugal perspective and respect for money. But that also 
there's some baggage that comes along with that. And what some of that baggage is that, um, that sort of embarrassment, um, or feelings of guilt around money, you know, gets transferred to your adulthood, or I should say to my adulthood. And so, you know, coming into adulthood with a sense of insecurity or fear when it comes to money, um, can be, is one of the biggest impediments for folks raising money, whether it's missionaries or pastors, because that, that insecurity comes out in how we communicate about the work that we're doing and people and people interpret that insecurity, um, or that slight sense of embarrassment or whatever it is that's sort of coming through as, uh, as a reflection of the ministry when it might not it probably isn't the ministry that's making you feel embarrassed. It's that internal kind of stuff that's going on. It's sort of part of our baggage from, from growing up. And so, you know, being able to, um, and what we end up doing is making decisions for other people based on our baggage and not based on what God has called someone else to do. Hmm. And so I think one of the first things people need to do is acknowledge sort of how, how money was talked about in their childhood and how that, um, how that's still um, impacting how they think about, and uh, how they think about money, and how they feel about money. Um, this it, this is obvious for a lot of people in their marriages, where one spouse grew up with in a certain socioeconomic level or talking about money a certain way in their family and they marry someone from a different perspective. And then when they go to balance the checkbook or make a purchase, they realize, Oh, well you should have, you sh- you need permission to make a purchase over a hundred dollars or you don't need permission to make, you know, it's those kinds of things where you figure out not everybody processes money and the, the meaning of money the same way. So, and that's true for us when we, when we, you know, stand before others and, and invite them to share a vision of what God is doing in our ministry um, and to financially support that. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, from my story as a church starter, um, there was some baggage there that we didn't really identify until maybe a year or two into gathering for worship. Um, the church we were coming out of um, was very high praise on the giver. And, uh, you know, we had some theological baggage with that. You know, we, we didn't want to uh, glorify the giver and not the gift. We, you know, we didn't want to uh, flaunt it around. And, and so we almost went the complete opposite of that. We had a giving table um, in the worship space, but we didn't even mention it. It was kind of like the, you know, the big elephant in the room that like everybody sees us there, but it's like, why weren't we just talking about it? And really what we found is that we were living off the assumption that, uh, people who were coming into the church for the first time or people who were coming into the church after uh, being gone for many years and had baggage with the church, we assumed um, that everyone had feelings about giving. Um, and that's really kind of based on a conversation or two I had with people who said, you know, uh, I had family members that were sick and dying, um, you know, and I felt like all the church was you know, concerned about was were people going to give uh, from, from our family? You know, we weren't there, but where were we going to give? You know, those types of things. And so we projected that onto everyone we were connecting with as a whole. And as a result, you know, in the beginning, we missed out on the opportunity to invite people into that process, all because of some unchecked baggage within our leadership group. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I, I remember uh, walking over to CBF and meeting with Matt Norman, who was, um, who was still personnel now in Spain, but was uh, working in the office at the time. And, and, you know, he said, yeah, well, you know, people are going new field personnel, they raise their own support. And I, I remember, I mean, he must've been able to feel my discomfort uh, with that by my body language. And, you know, he looked me in the eye and said, uh, you know, raising money is ministry. And that is something that had not occurred to me. And then he said, Brian, every, every pastor of every church has to accomplish this one way or another. And, and that sort of, you know, those sort of sound obvious, but, uh, you know, it sort of helps begin my sort of conversion of rethinking and, and self-awareness about money. Um, I didn't walk into beginning to raise money as field personnel with a healthy or enlightened self-awareness about what I thought about money. You know, the things I'm talking about now are things I discovered in the process um, there's a book, uh, spirituality of fundraising by Henry Nowlin that we, that we read then. And we continue to, uh, uh, promote among our field personnel because it really is a, a very nice, um, healthy, uh, way for people to think about money. And, um, Nowlin has a line in it that's something like, you know, asking people for money is, is a, is about you know giving them an opportunity to put their resources at the disposal of the kingdom, and um, and I think that if we have a, a genuine sense that what we're doing is a call from God, and that we're we're doing that with integrity, and we we can be confident in inviting other people to the opportunity to join that that work that God is doing. And we really sort of triangle, triangle ourselves out of that um, because we're, because it really is not about us that we, you know, we, all of us have this deep sense of fear of rejection and, um, and when it comes to, and that really starts bubbling up when, at the prospect of, you know, preaching a sermon on stewardship or starting a stewardship campaign or sitting down with someone one-on-one and saying, um, this is, you know, this is the ministry, this is where it is, and this is where it could be. Um, do you want to join this, this ministry? And, you know, even in my stutter right then, I was trying to think of a better way to word it. Um, uh, but there are these, these blocks that, you know, that, uh, we block ourselves with, you know, fears of rejection and, um, and sometimes it's, you know, jealousy or envy. Uh, we, uh, we look around at other ministries and other things and, and, and resources seem to come easier for other people. And one of the other things that really blocks us in our ability to invite people to join that vision is the fact that we have bubbling down underneath what our words is this sense that, you know, so-and-so's ministry, uh, she seems to be able to raise tons of money and by doing very little work, you know, from our perspective, of course, and here I am busting my hump to try to, you know, make ends meet. And, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, that, that, you know, we, we get stalked by the green eyed monster of jealousy and that can be really difficult to overcome. Mm. 
and we have to recognize that's about us. That's not about other people, about the donor, or about our you know, other folks in ministry around us. Yeah, I think that's one of the the most more difficult things around being a field personnel missionary or being a church starter is uh, is to remember that everything is contextual. Um, you know, keeping in mind that uh, other people might be in other places where there are people who are more generous, who are better off, who are in a more affluent area, and it might be easier for them to raise funds, or that people have been afforded the opportunity to have a, a larger sphere of influence around them, you know, more mentors and colleagues and the like. Uh, so I do, I do think you're right. Checking yourself, checking the baggage of that. I love this spiritual aspect of it. Uh, I'm a huge fan uh, of Nowen, and uh, that book is is very formational, spirituality fundraising. He says something in the book that, that really sticks out to me. Uh, fundraising is precisely the opposite of begging. The core of fundraising is casting a compelling vision that people want to be a part of. Um, yeah. So I think that's an important part of it. It's not just a spiritual side of it, but seeing the kingdom broad perspective of it and inviting people into that process is an important part of, of raising funds for the work you're being called to. That's great. Yeah, that's, ex- that's exactly right. And as you, as we sort of live into that, uh, we start finding that the joy that other people experience by being involved in something that is bigger than them and connected to so so many other great works of God around the world that, um, you know, another flat screen TV or whatever, (laughs) well, it's not just not going to accomplish in that person's life. Um, And I, you know, and I think that, you know, you know, we don't want to have a beggar mentality and then we don't, um, you know, one of those tricks is that when we start talking about fundraising with folks that they, they don't want to see their friends or family or people who visit their church with a dollar sign on their forehead. And that's a valid and important um, concern and a valid, a really valid concern. And one of the things we, we talk about in our fundraising is that we really want them to focus on having genuine meaningful life transforming relationships with people and not really to worry about the money and, um, and not worry about how much anybody gives. And, uh, and, and in in order to do that, what I have found helpful is that you set up a system that it, that is the thing that you do that you do no matter what, whether the person is homeless or the owner of 17 Chick-fil-A's. So, one of those is a system for communication um, and visitation that if uh, on every week at a certain time on a certain day, you, you write le- thank you letters or you write thank you emails or you do visitation and you do that to the next person on the list, no matter what. So you're not, um, you're not tempted to, uh, you know, so you know that the system is running um, your is keeping you accountable and you're not sort of just going from one, you're not going from one crisis to the next. And the other thing is you're not paying attention to the people who are paying attention to you more. Now they may, there may be certain situations where they need a little more attention, but you're, you're going to move through the, in your pastoral care 
of your congregation um, in a systematic way and and not and not play favorites with people who have the potential to help you buy a new building or a new sound system or something. And that when we have a need, when the church or the missionary has a need, that they make that need known and give a direct ask to meet that need without embarrassment, you know, to the best of our ability and that we don't. um, And if we're having a coffee conversation with someone because you think that they may be being called to help support a particular ministry, then say, I'm, I'm coming to have coffee with you because I want to talk about um, the, the, the building next door. And I know it's coming open and you might be in a position to help me think through how we can afford that. Um, uh, and then be sure to communicate clearly what people's gifts are doing. So just don't let it drop after um, the after the money's been spent. Um, and this is very easy now with, with uh, technology. Um, and then be sure to express... Um, I think this will be the last thing I say. Uh, express a genuine thanks and do it often. A genuine thanks in a person's love language. Thanks to that person in their love language. Um, so writing handwritten letters, of course, um, when people are given specific gifts. But also, you know, if some people want a big old hug. And so if that's what they need, you know, showing up uh, and surprising them with a, you know, a, their favorite kind of coffee and then giving a big old hug and just say, Hey, just wanted to pop in and say, I love you. Thank you for what you did. It's making a big difference in the lives of these kids or the lives of our congregation or whatever's going on. Um, but find those ways that are meaningful to them to thank them. Um, not necessarily the meaning, not necessarily the thank yous that are meaningful to us. Right. You look up the five love languages. But. Well, you know, what I've learned from this is that every time I come in town, I'm going to buy you a cup of coffee. And just so it's out there and, you know, in iTunes, um, I feel like my love language is, you know, getting a big wet kiss on my ring finger. So I'm going <laughs> to buy you a cup of coffee every day I'm in town, Atlanta, the office, um, and it's out there. So um, I, I need to feel appreciated in that. I, I think one of the things that um, is fascinating about what you're saying um, that really sticks out to me the most is this idea of building genuine relationships with people. It's not this idea, and it's it's so deep what you're saying. It's it's not this idea of just you know writing down an endless number of people you can send letters to, but it's about finding partners in ministry. It's about finding partners in the work of the kingdom of God. It's about inviting people into the process of, of what you're being called to. And I think as we have probably all found in our individual lives, those deep meaning friendships last longer um, than, than those ones that we just, you know, those conditional relationships, we need things from people. And so uh, I love this concept of, of really um, just building a strong relationship, um, not with a partnership base, but seeing them as friends, as colleagues, as uh, supporters in the work of God, um, and then making sure that we're also smart about taking care of those people in the same way they are helping take care of us. Um, as as you uh, 
talk with our field personnel and certainly as you talk with some of our church starters um, around building this partnership base, what are, what are some relationships uh, and people and spheres of influence that these, uh, these church starters need to consider? Yeah. And so I think where I got uh, I, on uh, talking about fantasy, I, I think a lot of people have um, unrealized hopes and dreams for the church. And um, because of their strong commitment to their look to their congregation, uh, maybe their established church, they're not in a position to go start a church or to split off or to, um, to join in a, in a more tangible way, but they would, but there are lots of people who would like to be partners in church starts, even in their own community, if not an adjacent community, uh, because they really have a genuine sense that they want to see those communities reached and, um, will be willing to support that in any way they can financially or by showing up to volunteer. And those can be um, ministers of other churches and lay leaders in other churches and dentists and postal workers and teachers and um, um, everyone in those sort of spheres of influence in that um, in that community and, and in the concentric circles of, of that community. Ryan, this has been brilliant stuff. You've, you've given our folks a lot of um, practical um, things to think around as they begin to wrestle with and live out uh, this idea of, of fundraising as a ministry um, to check, check the baggage at the door uh, around our feelings around money, our perception of how others feel about money um, to really understand that what we are inviting people into is as a kingdom ministry of raising funds to help transform the world. And I think that, and the biggest thing for me to take away is that, you know, seeing people not as a, a dollar sign on their forehead to quote you, uh, but to see them as true friends and partners in the work of God and how we approach people in that is completely different than just asking people to just give uh, randomly to the work we're doing. So I wonder if there's a uh, you know, final takeaway you would give to our folks. You know, as good Americans, we tend to be um, good at you know, doing things on our own, being good individualists, being self-sufficient, autonomous. And um, I, I just don't, I don't think that on the whole of scripture, when it comes to Christian community, that's what our calling is. And I, I think that our, our independence leads us into focusing too often on things and we get to comparing their things and our things and my stuff and their stuff. And I think what I want to circle back to is um, a challenge for all of us. And it's a challenge for me because I have to remind myself is to focus on relationships with people and not relationships with things. And I, I don't have a lot of power to influence, you know, other things, um, but I, or a lot of resources to acquire things. And I can't easily change that, but I have a lot of power to change my behavior and to focus on building relationships because that doesn't require a lot of outside resources. And if, and if I, if I can do that and when I can do that, I re I find myself increasing my capacity for the number of and the depths of those friendships. 
And if I get those relationships right, I have found when I'm able to, the rest of the stuff falls into place. I don't have to worry about things because I've got the relationships in balance and those relationships are feeding me and I'm being used to the best of my ability to be an instrument of God and um, through my relationships with others. And, and it becomes mutual and it's a community and we do it together. Thanks for joining this Church Starts Conversation. For more information about church starting and other initiatives by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, visit cbf.net.